This is Steve Lawson, and I want to welcome you to Men Who Rock the World. It's an exciting podcast that studies the lives and the legacies of great men in centuries past who have been used by God to turn the world upside down. Uh, These men are reformers. They're Puritans. They are preachers during the Great Awakening. Uh, They have been used even during the evangelical era. And so I want to be able to, to introduce you to them and for you to come under the uh, the influence of their lives. Um, I have had the opportunity to write biographies uh, on many of these men and to spend a year just researching and, and learning about how God used them so mightily. I have the opportunity to, to lecture in seminaries and to speak uh, in church pulpits on, on these great men, and I've even visited on-site leading tour groups to where really history was made. Uh, The importance of knowing church history cannot be overstated. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that other than the Bible itself and theology, that the most important thing that a Christian should know is church history. So I want you to join me in this podcast in learning how these great men of faith were so greatly used. God bless you. And today, we now are going to look at John Huss, and we're going to look at Martin Luther. Um, The flames of the Reformation, the pre-Reformation that began in England in the 14th century, those flames that were ignited by John Wycliffe leaped across the English Channel, and it ignited Prague. And the way that God did it is an amazing story. Because God is the God of providence. God is orchestrating all of the events of human history and leading it to its appointed end. And God works not only through believers, but God is orchestrating the places and the positions of unbelievers so that His unfolding story of history, which is His story, would move forward. And that's exactly what happened at the end of the 14th century. The sister of the king of Bohemia, which is today the Czech Republic, married the king of England, Richard II, and and formed a a, a political alliance, two unbelieving, uh, a monarch and the sister of a monarch, God married them and brought them together for a specific reason, so that England and Bohemia would now be joined at the hip. And that led to a student exchange program. And students at Oxford came to the University of Prague to study, and students at the University of Prague then traveled to England and studied at Oxford. And there at Oxford, the students from University of Prague, began to read the writings of John Wycliffe. And as they read the writings of John Wycliffe, they were captivated by the the force of his argument from Scripture concerning salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they were so taken that they brought back Wycliffe's writings across the English Channel back to the University of Prague, and there they placed them in the library. There was a young student 
who was very financially poor, who needed to earn money to pay his tuition. And there in the library, he made money by hand-copying documents and books, and John Wycliffe's writings were placed in front of him. And as he began to copy, what he was writing was going up that arm and into his head and into his heart, and that young man was John Huss. It was a very direct connection from Wycliffe to Huss. And to add to God's perfect timing, the, student ex- the, the marriage between the king of England and the, and the sister of the king of Bohemia happened in 1383. Wycliffe died in 1384. And so as Wycliffe is stepping off the scene, God has the next chapter of his unfolding story of providence already queued up and ready to advance what was taking place there in England. So it spread across the channel to to Bohemia. And so I want us to talk about John Huss. I want you to know John Huss. The name Wycliffe and Luther are probably better known to us, but the road to the Reformation runs through John Huss. And John Huss, in reality, is the bridge between John Wycliffe and Martin Luther, and John Huss is really, like in a relay race, he's running the middle leg. He's received the baton from John Wycliffe, and he will then pass it off, in a sense, to Martin Luther. So God always has the next man up. And many times we think, well, what's going to happen when R.C. Sproul dies? What's going to happen when John MacArthur goes to heaven? What's going to happen when the next person steps off the scene, just be assured God always has the next man up. God is always previous, and we have our time in history, and we run the race that God has set before us, but it's always passing the baton to the next generation, and they will take it. God raises up men and women at the appointed time to carry on the work. And so, John Huss is next man up. So let's talk about John Huss. The first thing I want you to know about him is his common upbringing. And that is so much like God. He wasn't born in a palace. He, he, he wasn't born uh, with uh, uh, royalty around him. He was born like most of us, just in a very common situation. He was born in 1372, which was 40 years after the birth of John Wycliffe. In a small town in southern Bohemia, a town, Hussinek, Hus means goose. He was raised of a peasant stock, really, and he grew up in a family that was intensely, strictly Catholic. And his mother wanted him to become a Catholic priest, which he eventually would. He entered elementary school at about age 13, and was really just kind of had received an average education. But at age 18, in 1390, he enrolled at the University of Prague, which would begin a long-term relationship with the University of Prague. And I want to remind you again, the strategic 
location of the university system as it relates to the Reformation. Calvin, Luther, Knox, Tyndale, Latimer, Ridley, all of these great reformers are the product of the university system. And by common grace, their minds were trained to know how to think and how to write and how to read, and they would use those skills in the cause of the Reformation and in their study of the Word of God. God is always previous, and He's always putting into your hand what you're going to need tomorrow. That's what God was doing with John Huss. And so, as I've already told you, he was financially poor and so worked in the library making handwritten copies of books and documents. Uh, Gutenberg would not invent the printing press until about 1450, and so everything is still being hand-copied, and this was Wycliffe's first exposure, excuse me, Huss's first exposure to Wycliffe. And to this day, there are still five copies of the complete works of Wycliffe in Huss's handwriting that is in the Stockholm Royal Library. This leads a second to Wycliffe-ism absorbed. Through this rigorous discipline of copying Wycliffe's works, Huss was absorbing Wycliffe's teaching. Now, Huss is not yet converted, but his mind is, is fertile, and the truth is being sown into his mind, and at the appointed time, God will cause that seed to germinate. But at this time, uh, the truth is being put into him, and Huss there at the University of Prague um, graduated with a bachelor's degree, 1393. Interesting footnote just flashed in my mind. I once asked R.C. Sproul, of all the cities around the world, what is the one city that you love the most, that most fascinates you? And just immediately he said, that would be Prague. He said, as the most beautiful, I love that city. And so it is a very special place. I've had the privilege of lecturing and teaching and preaching on Huss in Prague. It is a special place. And so Huss completed his Master of Arts degree, 1396, and immediately began teaching philosophy in the Faculty of Arts, which was an extraordinary honor for a young man. He's already beginning to demonstrate uh, his intellectual prowess, and he is appointed professor of theology at the University of Prague, 1398. And he showed such ability, he began to stand out among the faculty, and he was named the dean of the theological faculty, 1401. At this time, he took priestly vows and entered the priesthood, uh, really largely motivated, really by carnal desires, um, prestige, financial security, uh, acceptance in the academic community. And during these early years, as he is teaching theology, he comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The truth works its way into his heart and soul, and we know that it was the invisible hand of God that was birthing him into his kingdom. And whenever anyone is ever saved, it is always because the truth of the Word of God is planted 
into their soul. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. And in 1 Peter 1, it says, we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed, that is through the living and abiding word of God. And so the seed is being, has been sown into Huss's soul, and God sovereignly regenerates his spiritually dead soul, and he comes alive in Jesus Christ. The next year, 1402, Jerome of Prague, who has gone to Oxford to study, now returns from Oxford to the University of Prague, and he brings more of Wycliffe's writings, which further impact Huss. So it is Wycliffe's writings that have brought him to faith in Christ, and it is now Wycliffe's writings that will deepen him in Christ and especially controversial among Wycliffe's writings was to define the true nature of the church. And Wycliffe's stance was, just because you're in church does not mean you're in Christ. Just because you profess Christ does not mean you possess Christ. And that the true nature of the church is comprised of believers only. There will be unbelievers in the church. Some of them don't know that they're unbelievers, but they are unbelievers. But that the the true church is comprised of believers only, and standing behind that truth is the truth of sovereign election. That God, before the foundation of the world, chose a bride for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Wycliffe was, was Really, it was, it was groundbreaking at this time. Well, Huss imbibes that, and he births a theological movement in Bohemia that would influence Eastern Europe for centuries to come. What he especially agreed with Wycliffe was not only the true nature of the church, believers only, but he also brought railing accusation against the clerical corruption within the church of Rome, and especially the sale of indulgences, which is the sale and the purchase of forgiveness of sin. So this is, this is Wycliffe, and he even concluded that the Pope is among the non-elect and that the Catholic hierarchy, based upon what they are pontificating, are among the non-elect as well. They are false shepherds of the flock. They are blind leaders of the blind. Well, this leads us third to Huss being a powerful preacher. And what we need to understand about all of these reformers, from Calvin to Luther, the only exception would be Tyndale is that they were primarily preachers of the Word of God. They were brilliant intellectually enough to be professors and to teach students, but that really was only the, 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 the foundation for their ministry. First and foremost, they were preachers. John Calvin was first and foremost. He is the premier expositor of all church history. We tend to think of Calvin by his commentaries and the Institute of Christian religion and how prolific of an author he was, and he was. 
But if Calvin had to give up all of his ministries and only keep one, he would have kept the pulpit. The same with Luther. The same with John Knox, who was the trumpet blast of of Scotland. Well, the same was true of John Huss. These are not men who are just sitting in ivory towers and, and, and just uh, philosophizing, uh, disconnected from, from people and from life. These are men who took what they were studying in the Word of God, and they would mount the pulpit, and they would declare, thus says the Lord. And it was the force of their preaching, really, that drove the Reformation. It was the wind in the sails that was compelling the Reformation to move forward. And John Huss was a powerhouse of a preacher. He was appointed to be the preacher of what may have been the first megachurch in church history. There in Prague, Bethlehem Chapel, which was easily the most influential pulpit in Bohemia. It had been founded a decade earlier by a wealthy merchant who had been captivated by the truths that were now beginning to circulate about the Reformation and, and, and built this church. I've stood in that pulpit, and it's, it's like, just like this, it's a big rectangular box. It's not ornate like a Catholic church. It's just very plain and simple, and it would, it would seat 3,000 people in one large room, and the pulpit is like up here on the wall, and, and, and Huss would come stepping out of the door in the wall and be high enough that he could preach to 3,000 people who had gathered in the church. And there were many, many young people that, that flooded there who were turned off by the Catholic church and the hypocrisy of what they could see around them. And here's another thing we need to note, which is this, that the Reformation essentially was birthed on college campuses. It was, a, it was a college movement at the very beginning. And I have noticed in my ministry that once someone reaches 45 years of age, if they haven't come to sound doctrine, that they're suffering from that point on from a hardening of the categories. Uh, they, they do not have a capacity to think because they have been wrong for so long it's hard to undo that. But when you teach a college student, a young person, there's not as much to erase off the blackboard of their, of their mind. And they're receptive to the truth. And they're, they're, they're open-minded to examine the, the, the evidence and, and the teaching. And they will not only embrace it, they will run with it. And, and really, the English Reformation was, in essence, birthed on the college campus, the University of Campus of Cambridge, the White Horse Inn as William Tyndale and uh, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and Thomas Cranmer and, 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 and the rest were all a part of a small group Bible study to discuss the, the writings of Luther that have come across the English Channel. Uh, John Calvin was converted on, as a result of university experience, and Luther as well. And so, Huss is preaching They're in Prague to 3,000 people as they're just drawn to the force of his preaching of the Word of God. And what was so revolutionary is Huss preached in the vernacular language of the Czech people. Because at this time, when you went to church in a Catholic church, 
Everything was in Latin. Well, the common people did not know Latin. Latin was the language of the classroom. It was the language of the university classroom, and you had to, to go off to, to, to the university to learn Latin. So you would go to church and hear an entire worship service, including a homily in a language you could not even understand, and you would hear the priest go through all of his rigmarole in, in Latin. John Huss, as he begins to preach, he is such a force for God, he preaches in the Czech language, and the people begin to flood in to hear the preaching of the Word of God. It was revolutionary, and he was a careful student of Scripture, and he was preaching the, the Bible. And James Merle Dubonnet, who was a great Reformation uh, historian who was based out of Geneva and really became one of the principal um, researchers of Calvin's ministry, but he also gave much attention to the, to the Hussite Ref Reformation. He, he writes this about Huss's preaching, he, he, because Huss was a tour de force in the pulpit. Dubonnet writes, with a freedom and in an evangelical spirit, which reminds us of Luther, Huss testified against the vices of the clergy and the nobility, and did not spare even the Pope and his court. He could not be silenced. Many of his sermons were so eloquent, so penetrating and powerful that they would scarcely be allowed even in the present day to appear in Austria without alteration. With him, gospel truth was everything. And in publishing this, he cared little for persons or rank. He thought with the apostles in Galatians 1.10, if I please men, I would not be a servant of Christ, close quote. And so in the pulpit, Huss stressed the supreme authority of Scripture above any other voice or influence. It occupied the central place in the worship service, and his sermons were not ornate. They were lucid, they were direct, they were simple, they were fervent, and above all, they were biblical. And from his pulpit, he set forth such a force, it was said to make Rome tremble. So this leads us forth to heresy charges. 1403, a teacher at the University of Prague who was a master teacher began to study what Huss is preaching and what he is teaching in the classroom, and he comes, with, comes up with 45 teachings of Huss that he deems to be heretical and secured from the university faculty a charge of heresy against John Huss. This condemnation caused a split in the school between the German faculty and the Czech faculty. And the German faculty were heavily Catholic, and the Czech faculty were beginning to be influenced by Huss and the students in their, in their classroom. And so, uh, the new Archbishop of Prague favored Huss's reform and allowed Huss's writings to be accepted 
and his writings are simply an echo chamber of Wycliffe. At times, thought for thought from Wycliffe, um, Huss is simply a, a sounding board for, for Wycliffe. He, he is a, a restatement, if you will, a recycling of, of Wycliffe, point by, by point, a paraphrase of, of Wycliffe's works, yet now in the vernacular language of the Bohemian language, and Huss is such a powerful preacher, he, he is, it, it is spreading like, like wildfire. And it is a reform movement now in Prague that is growing strong through the pulpit of Bethlehem Chapel. Well, as you can imagine, this leads to fifth excommunicated reformer. In 1408, the adversaries of reform, meaning those who are trying to resist the, the, the reform that is taking place persuaded the archbishop to reinstate the old doctrines of, of Rome, and they succeeded. And the archbishop of Prague secured a papal bull. Uh, a papal bull is a, a declaration from the pope of condemnation that requires repentance. If there is no repentance, then you will be excommunicated and be put out of the church and when Huss received this papal bull, and by the way, Luther would receive a papal bull, and he considered it a badge of honor. Huss completely rejected it. And so the archbishop excommunicated Huss and had all of Wycliffe's books burned publicly in Prague. Well, not to get ahead of myself, but this would be the first of four excommunications <laughs> of, of Huss. It's kind of like Luther said, he, every year in, in the Vatican in Rome, he is declared to be the leading heretic on the earth, and he says, and yet I still live. That's Huss as well. And so he continues to preach boldly in Bethlehem Chapel, and the bolder he preached, the more the people were drawn. He, he would not be silenced. And he was summoned to appear in Rome, and he, like Wycliffe, he just refused to bow down to the Pope, and he refused to go to Rome. So he was excommunicated a second time, which, remember now, to be in right standing with God, supposedly, you have to be inside the church. Salvation was inside the church. And so if you're put out of the church, Supposedly, you're being put out of salvation and out of Christ. And so he is excommunicated a, a, a second time. The king of Bohemia has to step in, and he changed the university's constitution to be favorable to this Reformation movement. And so the Catholic-minded teachers and students left the school, and in this shift, us is now promoted to be the rector of the entire university. So it's an amazing thing. Uh, God removes one man and raises up another man. And that's exactly what took place. But this only escalated the conflict between Rome and Huss. And that's what it was, a conflict between Rome and Prague 
between the Pope and Huss, and the next Pope then begins to promote the sale of indulgences. And remember, this is what Luther will be up against. That's what provoked the nailing of the 95 Theses, this sale of forgiveness of sin for money. And Huss could smell a rat 10 miles away. And so he wouldn't be silent on this issue. And he condemned the indulgences as a hideous corruption of the one true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and it was really a foreshadowing of the, the stance that Luther would take, the exact same stance. And so because of his condemnation of the indulgences, he is excommunicated a third time. The tallest tree in the forest draws the lightning in the electrical storm. And the one who stands tallest in his generation for Christ and for the gospel is the one who will draw the fire from either the government or from false religion. And that was the case with Huss. I'm also reminded of Luther's quote at the end of Luther's life before he died. He said, I am as well known in hell as I am in heaven. And that was Huss. You know where I stand. And like with John Knox, who said in Scotland, I will call a spade a spade. So, things are heating up in Prague. Um, it's becoming a hotbed of controversy. And by the way, wherever the truth is advanced, whenever the truth moves forward, it always brings controversy. There has never been a movement but that there was friction from the advancement of the truth as it cuts against the course of this evil world system. So this leads six to voluntary exile. Huss, because of these public demonstrations that are breaking out in Prague now by the Reformed-minded students and people in, in Prague, he, he will be forced to undertake a voluntary exile. Because, understand this, he's not after a revolution, he's after a reformation. And that's what we want is a reformation. And that's what Luther wanted, and that's what Huss wanted. And there's a buildup to his voluntary exile. Huss has a simulated papal bull drafted, and it is burned publicly, something that Luther will do as well in 1520. And in this uprising, three young men who are Reformation men were beheaded for opposing the sale of indulgences. And so as, as a mounting threat to Rome, Rome must respond with force, and they excommunicate Huss a fourth time. But Prague is largely siding with Huss and they threaten violence against the papacy. And so to prevent that from this becoming a, a, 
a, a revolution, Huss withdraws out of Prague for two years. He withdraws to southern Bohemia, not because he lacks courage, but because he possesses wisdom. And he does not want this to be provoked to a point that the truth is lost in the shuffle. Uh, Luther would face the same in the peasant revolt as it became more of a social reaction than a gospel reaction. So this leads us to seventh theological writings. In seclusion, and this happens so often, it happened with Wycliffe. It was after Wycliffe had to leave Oxford and goes to Lutterworth, there in seclusion he does his greatest work. It's almost like Churchill before World War II. He was in seclusion until he was called to be prime minister. It's like the Apostle Paul as he is in Rome and uh, imprisoned in Rome, his first Roman imprisonment. He was there for two years. He does some of his greatest work in chains as he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so the same was true with Luther. As Luther was kidnapped by his friends and taken to the Wartburg Castle, and, and, and there they hid him so that he could not uh, come under the death penalty, there by himself at the Wartburg Castle, Luther translates the New Testament into the German language and gives the greatest gift he could give to the, to the German people, a Bible in their own language. So many times in the strange providence of God, when, when the leader is forced into exile, there in isolation... He does His greatest work. So we must understand that God is always at work, even in what would appear to be difficult circumstances, and it was true with Huss. He writes an exposition of the faith, which is kind of like a survey of Bible doctrine. He writes a commentary on the Ten Commandments and one on the Lord's Prayer. But in 1413, during this time, he writes his most significant book the title of which is On the Church. It's a treatise on the church. And his main argument was really an echo of Wycliffe's main argument, which was that the true church is comprised of the elect. These men were strong on sovereign grace. They were strong on sovereign election. These are not weak little Arminian men thinking man is in charge. No, they understood the sovereignty of God in salvation, and it became the prism through which they viewed everything else. And so he states that, as I've already said, that the Pope and the Cardinals are not among the true church. They give no evidence of saving grace in their, their life. And Huss insists that Peter was never the head of the Roman Catholic Church, but was only one of equals over the church in Rome. And so he writes on the church, and it becomes the chief document of the Hussite Reformation, and it would play an important role even in Luther's life. Huss, like Wycliffe, was reformed in his theology before the Reformation. That's why we refer to Huss and Wycliffe as pre-reformers. So let me tell you a few of the things that Huss 
believed, and I want you to hear this in Huss's own words. There's a certain, I think, uh, force about hearing it in their own words. Huss strongly believed in the sovereignty of God over the affairs of human history, and it would be his belief in the sovereignty of God that would embolden him to face death itself, because he believed that God was ordering the events of his life and that God was over even the time of his death, that God sovereignly rules and reigns. Huss writes, God alone has the power to kill and make alive, to destroy and to save, and to preserve his faithful ones in perils and to grant unto them the eternal life with joy unspeakable. So, the truth of the sovereignty of God made Huss as bold as a lion. Closely related, he believed in the sovereign headship of Jesus Christ over the church, as opposed to the Pope's baseless claim to be the head of the church. Huss wrote, any Christian cannot be head of the church with Christ, for the church cannot be a monster with two heads. So he was calling the Catholic Church a two-headed monster, Christ and the Pope, the two heads. He writes, Christ alone is the head of the universal church. He writes, neither is the Pope the head, nor the cardinals, nor the whole body of the whole universal Catholic church, for Christ alone is the head of the church. And he said it emphatically. And his predestined ones are the body. And each one is a member because his bride is one person with Christ. And so what he accuses Rome of doing is silencing the true head of the church, Christ. And instead, an imposter is speaking, the Pope. And so, he accuses Rome of, in essence, hitting the mute button and cutting out the tongue of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would no longer speak to his church through written Scripture. Instead, there would be a false shepherd who would speak to the church. Huss is emboldened because of his convictions in the sovereignty of God and the supremacy of Christ. He naturally believed in total depravity of the human nature. He says, natural man is prone to forsaking and despising God's Word, so he would stand with the Reformers in affirming radical corruption of the un converted heart. He says, people are ensnared by the world, the flesh, and the devil. So he knew what he was up against. And as a result of this, he preached that all men are subject to divine judgment. He says, there is at hand the judgment of a judge, most awful, at whose bidding necessity will be laid upon all men to publish their evil deeds, and their souls will be burned in everlasting fire. Huss, as I've already said, affirmed the doctrine of sovereign election. Listen to these quotes. Predestination is the election of the divine will through grace. So he understood through grace that 
the Father before the foundation of the world has chosen His elect, but not on the basis of them. It is actually in spite of them. It is simply because of God's grace. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion, and I will harden the rest. Romans 9. He says, no human election, meaning no human decision, makes a person a member of the holy universal church, but divine predestination does in the case of everyone who persists in following Christ in love. True, we believe in Christ, but the reason we believe in Christ is because the Father has already chosen us long before. It says the the unity of the Catholic Church, and when he says Catholic Church, the word Catholic, by the way, means universal. The unity of the universal church consists in the unity of predestination. In other words... Before the foundation of the world, God chose all of His elect at one time, and their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Their their, their names are not being written in the Lamb's book of life as they come to faith in Christ, as if this is an ongoing volume in which names are constantly being added day by day by day. No, Huss understood. No, all of those names were written in the Lamb's book of life at one moment before time began long ages ago, and there is the true unity of the church. He says, some are sheep by predestination and others are ravening wolves. I mean, that's what Jesus said. John 10, verse 26, you do not believe because you're not one of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them from my hand, for my Father who is greater than all, has given them to me, and no one shall pluck them from his hand. I and the Father are one. Huss writes, if anyone is predestined to eternal life, it necessarily follows that he is predestined unto righteousness. I mean, that's just Ephesians 1 verse 4. We are chosen in Christ to be holy and, and blameless before Him. That there will be the evidence of a changed life in all of the elect. They will give evidence of their election by their sanctification. Maybe one more quote here. How clearly does Augustine show, so he was a reader of Augustine, that many are in the church who are nominally called sons by men who nevertheless are not of the church, for they are not truly sons of God by predestination unto eternal life. So he is very strong on the sovereignty of God. And here's what we need to understand. Just just hear this. If you believe in the sovereignty of God over creation, over history, over providence, over salvation, and over judgment, you're going to get 50 other doctrines correct. And if you're wrong about sovereign election, you're going to be wrong across the board. It is the rudder of the ship. It is the steering wheel. It is a cornerstone doctrine. It is a chief doctrine that is a master doctrine over other doctrines. 
And virtually to a man, all, all of these reformers were strong on the sovereignty of God. This was not an Arminian movement. This was not a semi-Pelagian movement. And the reason they were so strong on sovereign election is because they were so strong on the Bible. I always have people, like in a setting like this, come up and tell me, you know, I've been listening to some of your videos or Dr. MacArthur, and I've just recently become reformed in my understanding, and I always just say, welcome to the Bible. (laughs) Welcome to the Bible. And that was Huss. And it governed how he saw the church. He he believed not only in election, but also in reprobation, double election, double predestination, that there would be those who would be passed over who were not chosen. He writes, all are divided into the reprobate and the predestined, the former being ultimately the members of the devil and the others, referring to the predestined, of the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, the true church is the mystical body of Christ that is now hidden to us, of which body the damned do not really have part. But they are like dung, which in the day of judgment are to be separated from the body of of, of Christ. In order to take a stand like Luther and and Huss took and, and Wycliffe, you've got to have your feet nailed to the floor with strong doctrine like this. He said, the good and the bad are mingled in the holy body, but the bad are not true sons of God, just as those are not true friends because they lack the marriage garment, which is predestinating love. That reprobate Judas never was Christ's disciple, as Augustine shows, but a wolf clad in sheep's clothing. Well, that just gives you a little bit of a flavor of Huss. He's not a, he's not a life coach. <laughs> he, he, he's not a Christian comedian. He, he, he's not a, you know, a guru. He's not a devotional speaker. He's not a motivational speaker. He's a straight-talking Bible preacher. And that's what it requires to have a reformation. This leads to eighth papal summons. So in the fall of 1414, the Pope convened an ecumenical council known as the Council of Constance that met in Constance, Germany. It was a big conference. It lasted for four years. Sounds like a deacon's meeting. (laughs) Lasted for four years. I spent a month in one of those one night. (laughs) Selah. And as they convened the Council of Constance, there, there are several issues on the table that the ecclesiastical hierarchy of the day of Rome has to work through. It's a Catholic conference or council. 
And one of which is, it's kind of funny, there were two men claiming to be the Pope. <laughs> so they, they had to decide who, who's the real Pope and who's the false Pope. And so I guess the false Pope is double false and the true Pope is false only once. Selah. But the other issue on the table is what's going on in Prague, because this is threatening the stability of, of the, the Roman Catholic dominance, and they realize we've got to shut this thing down. I mean, this is like an outbreak in Hong Kong, and, and we've got to shut this down before this spreads. And Huss stood squarely in the center of the controversy at the Council of Constance, and so he is summoned to attend the council, and his friends suspect an ambush and warn him not to go. Huss receives an assurance of safety from the Holy Roman Emperor, and he accepts the invitation with the high hopes of presenting his views, and he thinks this is going to be a theological discussion and debate, and he will be able to win over his opponents in this disputation. And by the way, this is just a dress rehearsal for Luther. When Luther is summoned to the Diet of Worms in 1521, he thinks he's going to a theological discussion and it ends up being a heresy trial that will cost him, or there'll be a price put on his head. And in Luther's day, they will remind him of Huss. They promised Huss a safe delivery to, to Constance, and you remember what they did? They reneged on it, and they, they imprisoned him and burned him at the stake. And Luther, being Luther, said, I'm going anyway. Sounds like John MacArthur, doesn't it? <laughs> and so, Huss goes. He arrives November the 3rd, 1414, and as soon as he steps foot into the council, he's immediately arrested for heresy. It was all just a bait and trap. And he's thrown into prison, Huss, and he's confined, confined there for eight months as the council is addressing other issues. His health declined so significantly that only a visit from the Pope's physician kept him alive. And the only reason they wanted to keep him alive is so they could condemn him publicly. They don't want him to die in prison. We want to make an example out of Huss. And one detractor, one adversary against Huss came into the prison and confronted him about his connection with Wycliffe. And the man said, since the birth of Christ, there has not arisen a more dangerous heretic than yourself except Wycliffe. And Huss counters. His, 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 there are people around him who in essence said this. I'm just going to paraphrase it. I've got the quote right here. But they said, listen, when you go in to address the council... Even if they say you have only one eye and you know that you have two eyes, 
agree with them and tell them, you're right, I only have one eye. And Hus replied, if the whole world told me I only had one eye, I have two eyes, and I will stand on the truth. And so, his quote, let me give you this exact quote because it is a foreshadowing of Luther. Same language. If the whole world told me so, as long as I have the use of my reason, listen to this now, I could not say, I could not say so without resisting my conscience. Conscience. You remember Luther at the Diet of Worms said, my conscience is held captive by the Word of God. I can do no other. Here I stand. God help me. It was his conscience is so sharpened by the truth of Scripture, he cannot violate his conscience. You have to be a liberal to violate your conscience. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Don't make me beg. (laughs) Now, here's the deal, too. You need to know this. They don't burn liberals at the stake. They only burn Bible preachers at the stake because they are men of convictions. So, he lays in prison for being a truth teller, and he writes some letters that historians say rank among the greatest in Christian literature. Let me give you one short paragraph of one letter that he writes to the outside world from prison. O most holy Christ, draw me, weak as I am, after yourself. For if you do not draw me, I cannot follow you. Strengthen my spirit that it may be willing. If the flesh is weak, Let your grace precede me, come between and follow, for without you I cannot go for your sake to a cruel death. He knows what's awaiting him. Give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love that for your sake... I may lay down my life with patience and joy. Amen. He knew that he would supply the weakness and God would supply the strength. That he would be able to go forward and face whatever may come. This leads us to 10th heresy trial the actual trial. At last, Huss is retrieved from prison and placed on trial with the charge of Wycliffe-ism, July 1415, and he is ordered to condemn the works of John Wycliffe because they understand that Huss is preaching the very same doctrine that Wycliffe was preaching. And even the unbelieving Catholic Church understood the direct connection between Wycliffe 
and Huss. And as he stands trial, the charge is for being a Wycliffeite. And he is called upon to condemn the works of Wycliffe. And Huss stated that he supported Wycliffe, but would condemn any of Wycliffe's teachings if it could be proven to be wrong by the Bible. So he is sola scriptura before there was sola scriptura. He firmly held to the teachings set forth in Scripture that were in direct contradiction to the fabrications of Rome. And when Huss was urged to recant his teaching, he said, I refuse to be the enemy of the truth and will resist to the death all agreement with falsehood. Now listen to this. Huss said, it is better to die well than to live badly, close quote. And he's right. There's something worse than being a martyr and being burned at the stake, and that's to deny the truth and live badly. So in the face of his execution, Huss wrote, I, John Huss, in chains and prison, now standing on the shore of this present life and expecting tomorrow a dreadful death, find no heresy in myself and accept with all of my heart any truth whatsoever that is worthy of belief. And so, the next heading, Faithful Martyr, the date is July 6th, 1415. The Council of Constance officially declared the teachings of Wycliffe to be heretical. They ordered the bones of Wycliffe to be exhumed and removed from sacred ground in the church's graveyard, as we talked about last night. So before they condemn Huss, they recondemn Wycliffe again because they understand the clear connection between Wycliffe and Huss. They stand shoulder to shoulder. They speak with one voice. They are as if they are one man with one mission. And then the council, after condemning Wycliffe, now condemn Huss as the leading exponent of Wycliffe's teaching. And this is the charge. This holy synod of Constance, seeing that God's church has nothing more that, can, that it can do, relinquishes John Huss to the judgment of the secular authority. They understood that they would have to turn him over to the government for the death penalty be, to be executed, just like the Pharisees turned Jesus over to Pilate, who had the power of life and death. And so, Huss is taken through a very humiliating ceremony. Six bishops of the Catholic Church strip Huss of his priestly garments and shaved his head. That's what they did with Tyndale. It was symbolic that the Holy Spirit is removed from you now. And they put on his head a paper hat covered with red demons, 
and the word written on it, heretic. So he would go to the stake. The place of the stake was known as the devil's place. And those that the Catholic Church believed were in league with the devil were taken there with demons on a hat atop the head. And as Hus goes, he says, I commit myself to my most gracious Lord Jesus and turned to his executioners and said this, one of the most famous statements in all of church history. Today, you are burning a goose. The name Hus means goose. However, a hundred years from now, you will be able to hear a swan sing, and you will not burn it, and you will have to listen to him. Us having no idea how that would be fulfilled. Luther saw himself as the embodiment of that foreshadowing. And he saw himself as the second Huss. That Huss lived again in Luther. The council then handed Huss over to the Roman emperor who was sitting on an imperial throne in full regalia. And Huss, bound in chains, was ordered to recant or die. Huss refused to deny his writings, so the soldiers led him away to be burned at the stake. And when ordered to recant one last time, Huss replied, God is my witness that the things charged against me I have not preached, and the same truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, I am ready to die today. That same afternoon at the execution site, the devil's place, Huss was burned at the stake as a martyr for the truth that he preached. He died singing. He died singing, Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. It leads us finally to enduring influence. The story of John Huss, perhaps not as well known as other figures, luminaries in church history, what we just walked through reads like a dress rehearsal for a century later with Martin Luther. And in fact, in February 1520, Luther, one year after his conversion, wrote, without knowing it, this is Luther, without knowing it, I both taught and held the teaching of Huss. In short, we are all Hussites without knowing it. We're holding to the same truth that Huss held to. And Luther saw himself as the fulfillment of 
Huss's prediction of a coming swan that they will listen to. And Luther in 1531 writes, John Huss prophesied of me when he wrote from his prison in Bohemia. They will now roast a goose, but after a hundred years, they will hear a swan sing. Him they will have to tolerate, and so it shall continue. Luther goes, that's me. I just stepped into the shoes of John Huss, who had stepped into the shoes of John Wycliffe. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, would say in his day, they burned John Huss, but Huss foretold as he died that another would arise after him whom they should not be able to put down. And in due time, he, Huss, more than lived again in Luther. He, Huss, lives and will live wherever the truths are taught. And so the influence of Huss continues to this day. Though dead, yet he speaks. So what do we learn from Huss? Let me just end with three things. Just give me a few minutes. Number one, there are hills worth dying on. And wise is the man and wise is the woman who knows which hills those are. You can't die on every hill because every hill's not as important as other hills. Huss died on the right hill. It was the gospel that was at stake. As you and I are living in perilous times, unprecedented in the history of our nation, as all hell is breaking loose, as our nation is unraveling like a cheap sweater, we need wisdom to know which hills do we die on. And it is worthy of our death, if need be. Second, there is always a price to be paid to advance the truth. In a fallen world, the truth will always be opposed and resisted. Truth creates controversy. Truth creates conflict. I would remind us that Jesus said, I've come not to bring peace but a sword. I've come to divide a man with his daughter and a mother with her children. There is conflict that comes with the truth and persecution. And we must be willing to pay the price. Third and finally, God gives His servants a greater grace in their hour of trial. As Huss stood trial for heresy, as Huss approached the stake, God gave him 
the inner strength, the conviction, the depth, a certainty as that hour approached. And he literally died at the stake, being burned, singing unto Jesus. I remember what John Wesley once said, our people die well. And so, God gives that greater grace, that greater strength, as the hour of controversy arrives. He will do the same for you. His grace is all-sufficient. And what may seem to be so overwhelming today as you would face a future, whatever that landmine is in the future, you don't need the grace to face that until you get there. But when you arrive, He will give you the grace to face it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank You for Your grace that was at work in the life of John Huss in a most incredible way as history was hinging in the midst of a gathering storm. And Lord, I pray for us in this room today that You would give us a greater grace as we too find ourselves in the midst of heated controversy, as the truth is being so opposed and those who would uphold the truth so persecuted, nail our feet to the floor. Nail our flag to the mast. Give us the strength, give us the grace that we will need to face the storms that are breaking on the horizon even today. We praise You for the sufficiency of your grace, for we would rather die well than live badly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Men Who Rock the World. If you want to follow us on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at onepassion.org. Please join me next week for the next episode of Men Who Rock the World.